This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Sam Chandon. Welcome back to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. In the years that have followed the great financial crisis, the net lease sector, which includes properties where the tenant covers taxes, maintenance, and insurance, in addition to rent, has seen a surge in investor interest. Increasing threefold since 2009, net lease investment volume reached $18.8 billion last year, and that's according to research firm Real Capital Analytics. For a big picture look at the net lease sector, I'm joined now by James Komen, managing principal and founder at Elm Tree Funds. At Elm Tree, Jim oversees all aspects of the business, including strategy, acquisitions, and dispositions. Uh, Elm Tree has developed, acquired, financed, disposed of more than $5 billion of assets and has worked with corporate tenants such as General Electric, Caterpillar, and FedEx. Jim, thanks for coming on to the program. Oh, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So, for listeners who may be unfamiliar, Tell us a little bit about what is net lease, and, and I want to hear a little bit about not only the lease structure, but the types of properties we're talking about here. So when we talk about net lease, this is typically a single tenant building, and it can be comprised in either the office, industrial, medical, or retail arena. And this is where a single tenant, better defined as a corporate user, agrees to pay all real estate taxes, insurance, which property insurance and all maintenance of the property. So for a matter of speaking, as the landlord or owner of the property, you have little to no responsibility to maintain or oversee the property outside of receiving your rent check. So from the perspective of that owner, um, what what are the range of prices, sizes that we're going to see? It it sounds like it's a fundamentally different experience from being an owner of an apartment building where you have multiple tenants and sort of there's some degree of operational intensity associated with the asset. That's absolutely correct. When you look across the net lease universe, we see assets that range in size from anywhere as small uh, from 1 million up to 750 million. Depending on the type of operation and use that exist out there. So for example, we typically see the mom and pop investor out there, what we call the non-institutional investor. They typically follow the retail train of thought, where they will invest in long-term net lease assets such as drugstores, CVS and Walgreens, dollar stores, restaurants, the McDonald's, the Starbucks, et cetera. From there, we move up to more regional investors, which are typically in the 10 to $25 million range. And here we're talking about mid-size, the smaller office buildings, smaller outpatient medical facilities, quote, a little larger retail, a Walmart big box, a Home Depot or a Kohl's freestanding big box, or local distribution warehouses. And, of course, from there we continuously move up the ladder there where you have more institutional-type quality properties, which are really everything from $25 million above. And that would include your, your e-logistics commerce regional distribution facilities, headquarters for a lot of the Fortune 500, more of the two, three-day micro-hospitals, medical hospitals, and so forth. And then, of course, when we get to more of the trophy properties, these are your really larger gateway uh, city-type properties where you have a major headquarters for a company like a Pfizer or a Unilever, et cetera. 
you know, or a state farm. And then these can be quite costly, but they're on a much longer lease term of, of 15 to 20 years. So how do those longer lease terms, when you describe 15 to 20 years, you know, perhaps 10 years for a relatively smaller property, how does that compare to commercial real estate overall? Are these what we would think of you know, as relatively long-dated leases for any property type? Well, I, I, you know, you're, you're talking about a different strategy. And I think when you're looking at net lease, it really the strategy at the end of the day is that it provides predictability and certainty that you can also obtain long-term financing because the lender already has or is aware of exactly what the rental payments by the corporation are going to be over that whole term of the lease. When you look at other types of properties, multi-tenant, et cetera, out there, you're really at the whim of the market. If the market's got headwinds, you know, your rental rates will be a little bit lower. But if the market's rising and is, the economy is getting better, as what we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, every two or three years, you would expect rental increases on an annual basis as tenants go through that multi-tenant process. They take a little bit smaller space, a little more uncertainty on keeping them in your building, but at the same time, you're guarding a higher return. So it's kind of a trade-off. So it sounds like, you know, from the investor's perspective, you're buying the stream of cash flows that is relatively predictable. From an operational perspective, there's not a lot for you to do. This looks a little bit like a bond. I think that's the best way to look at it. In a lot of ways that we say, when you, when you look at net lease and you look at the corporate debt equivalent of the same household name, for example, if you're buying a Federal Express at a 7% unleveraged yield to cost or you're buying the same 10-year bond, from Federal Express, you've got an arbitrage in there of 200 basis points, say, for example. You put 60% leverage on that asset, you now are pushing up, you know, your overall returns, you know, another two, 300 basis points. You know, so you're basically garnering the same credit protection, though the bond is liquid, the real estate is illiquid, but for the illiquidity, you're seeing four or 500 basis points more return. So if a lot of this is about the security and stability of the cash flow, and we talk about a tenant like FedEx, um, you know, a credit tenant, um, I, I imagine that we must see meaningful differences in prices for these assets depending on who that tenant is. No question today. When you're looking at the, the selectivity of assets between the investment grade and non-investment grades across the universe, investment grade assets we are seeing anywhere from the Inland Empire in California and the gateway markets as low as three, three and a quarter percent to as high as six and a quarter percent, kind of the secondary markets across the U.S. on investment grade. And then the range for non-investment grade, because of the search for yield, those cap rates are coming into the mid-sixes to as high as eight percent overall. Yes on leverage yield to cost. And in terms of some of these corporate tenants, so I mean, I give it to you, FedEx, Caterpillar, General Electric, do we see real differences in terms of you know, these different companies' approach to their corporate real estate? So FedEx may say, we're not in the business of owning you know, industrial distribution warehouse. You know, we're always going to be a leaser in that market. Uh, and it could be perhaps that Amazon you know, is leasing where, where it has to and is owning where it's possible. You know, do we see those kinds of differences? across your different you know, big brand-name tenants? Absolutely. I think in a lot of ways, the net lease structure it becomes attractive to corporate tenants because it allows them to obtain this long-term financing for these real estate needs without having to put any of their own equity into the property. The way that we look at for an operating company, these corporations, they allocate their capital to the core operating business where they have traditionally make more profit 
than they do on the real estate side as being a real estate investor. And that's why they're so likely to enter into these long-term leases. So if I'm looking at a property that has, you know, 10 years remaining on the lease that, you know, in a credit tenant, that's going to, you know, command a, a re- relatively low yield because it, it's going to look like a great investment. But what about that same property when, you know, the renewal is maybe six months away? Uh, you know, is the market, you know, making some kind of, you know, assessment around whether or not that tenant is going to renew the lease? I think when you're taking this and we've actually got that situation in one of our local markets we're impending right now. This is a major, major Fortune 50 company. They have four years remaining on your lease term. And the way the market's looking at it, four years is the same as the equivalent as six months to 12 months out is. That is a very risky proposition on a very expensive property. And if the renewal rate doesn't stay in place, meaning that the same rental rate stays in place for the next renewal period, the asset loses a tremendous amount of value which thereby, even though the credit is great on the corporate lease, you're still seeing a much higher capitalization rate on that asset. Some cases, 100 to 150 basis points wide of where it would originally trade based upon a longer lease term of 10 years or more. I imagine, I mean, there is a risk element here. You described how you've got, you know, almost exclusively single tenant assets, um, you know, and that provides for the you know, stability, predictability, you've got the long-term lease in place. Um, but when a, a space goes vacant, it goes 100% vacant. That's correct. I mean, in, in most cases, that's the case. There's been a strategic change in the business unit or the operation of that facility. I think in a lot of ways, what's important when you're looking to invest into net lease is that not only do you have to go through the traditional real estate fundamentals and the normal credit underwriting, you really need to spend time looking at the business unit revenues of that operation, looking at the financial reporting. If you can get audit financials, for example, on an annual basis, you really understand where that business unit, that corporation lies within its sector, within its competition. And from there, you kind of garner the intel is this going to be mission critical, strategic, strategic important, that's going to really push itself to, in a lot of cases, the probability of increased renewal for that asset. Though they may sign for 10 years, 15 years, were they going to be there for 25 to 30 years? You know, And that's what a lot of the underwriting should do for you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Jim Komen, Managing Principal and Founder at Elm Tree Funds. We're discussing all things net lease. Uh, what role do foreign investors play in this sector? I know when we've had guests on that have talked about some of the dynamics of capital flows in you know, large multifamily or office and major urban cores like New York and Washington, D.C. You know, the ebbs and flows of foreign capital you know, are meaningful in terms of the outcomes we see. Uh, do you get foreign investors in this market as well? We absolutely do. I think we've seen over the last couple of years, foreign capital has been extremely active. You know, I believe according to uh, Real Capital Analytics, they're now the data, they're almost 15% of, of the net lease buyers out there in the industrial and office transactions across the country. I think what's becoming more interesting is that the foreign investors are moving outside of these gateway markets, and they're moving into more of the secondary cities. And when we talk about secondary cities across the U.S., we typically rank that upon population. And when you look from them dropping down outside of your traditional gateway markets of Chicago, New York, Boston, D.C., San Francisco, et cetera, they are really making inroads into a lot of the Midwest, a lot of the South, into the Texas marketplaces. 
they like what I think most people like in, in net lease, and that's that stability and the predictability of that yield. For them, um, they're very conservative. They're coming from geopolitical situations in their markets back home, whether you're talking about the Asian markets and what's going on there, or over Europe where you just don't see future growth going on in a lot of the countries over there, or for the Middle East where there's constant disruption. We still think, and I think most investors agree across the universe, that the U.S. is the best and the safest place to invest. And for that, they're driving cap rates down because they're willing to take less yield to keep their capital in a safe harbor. So we do talk about cap rates going down, and you know, certainly the RCA data, I believe, shows cap rate compression. You know, it's a feature of the market that you know continued into 2017. It is part of the move from that primary or, or gateway market into a secondary market you know, the same motivation as we see for a lot of investors uh, in that uh, there just aren't a lot of good deals in that gateway market. Things look really expensive, um, and that means that I have to start looking more broadly. Well, that, that, that's absolutely correct. But I, I think what's really interesting out there in the marketplace is that the selected selectivity of solid investment-grade net lease assets are becoming you know, less and less available, which, once again, that's driving these cap rates even lower and lower for the very good names out there in the marketplace. And in a lot of ways, when you're going into Louisville, Kentucky, for example, we were looking at a deal there in Columbus, Ohio, and our – we're the top three bidders, and it's we're a U.S. domestic fund, and our two competitors are an Asian Chinese-based, Korean-based investor, and a Saudi-based family office, and they are all 40 to 50 basis points lower than where we are in the cap rate spectrum. That's what we're seeing you know, across the industry right now. I had a chance here in New York just a couple of weeks ago to give the keynote at um, uh, ALM's National Annual Net Lease Conference, and I think having a chance to speak to a lot of folks there anecdotally, um, you know, I think folks describe the sector as one that has really come into its own um, over the course of this expansion, that it, uh, the uh, investor acceptance of the net lease uh, investment as a part of their larger portfolio you know, has improved substantially. Beyond the anecdotal observation, is that what we're seeing in the market? Uh, is it more acceptable as an institutional asset class? If so, what's really driven that? Well, I, I, so it's twofold. We use a couple different examples to highlight that. One is, if you look at the net asset value of publicly traded net lease REITs going back 10, 12 years, it was approximately $25 billion. Today, it's over $140 billion on an NAB basis. A lot of institutional capital driving that. A lot more, quote, public REITs in the net lease sector have come online. Now we're comprised of almost close to 11, 12% of the NAB composite. Um, number two, when you look out there in the marketplace and you see over the last five years, boy, we've tracked the net lease market for us in the office industrial medical fields. We've seen a consistent sales average of $43 billion over the last five years. In 2008, that was below $15 billion on average. So we're seeing in a lot of ways foreign capital, pension funds, Canadian pension funds, retirement systems, there are a lot more people out there who've decided when they look at their allocation buckets, it's not only the private equity real estate bucket that's going into acquiring these deals, it's also their opportunistic fixed income buckets that they're drawing capital from because they're garnering that arbitrage. Same thing. I can buy a 10-year FedEx bond at 4%. 
unleveraged, or I could buy, you know, an unleveraged Federal Express deal, 10-year deal at six and a half to seven percent. Put leverage on that, you know, 25 to 45 percent, and still garner, you know, another 100 basis points more. For example, that's what's driving this marketplace out there. People are consistently, and we believe for the foreseeable future, you know, the next three to five years, looking for yield. We just don't think the fixed income markets are going to get any better. And so I can certainly see how during a period of weakness in the economy, the defensive characteristics of NetLease must come into play, that stability, the security, the credit tenant. How does NetLease perform when other real estate sectors are performing very well? Are there things that we do with the leases themselves that, you know, if inflationary pressures are increasing, that you know, while it's a bond-like instrument or investment, um, you know, I don't want the value of my net lease asset to fall because inflation rates are rising. How, how do I manage that in the lease structure? I think what we look at it, a big part of what we're putting in our leases and what we like to see when we acquire the net lease assets is contractual rental escalations. In a lot of ways, we are really trying to push uh, across all of our base here, you know, assets to have annual rental escalations of at least a minimum of 2% or higher. That is our hedge against inflation. That contractual rental growth also provides, along with the investment-grade nature of the asset, a lower borrowing spread on your capital, which, once again, should help see you through different economic cycles. So when we're looking at, you know, some of the features of the economy, of the policy environment that are impacting different types of real estate. Um, you know, certainly, you know, there have been changes in the most recent set of tax reforms that have implications for you know, residential real estate. You know, is there anything in that policy environment in you know, the most recent round of tax reforms you know, that has implications for the net lease sector? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is just going to really benefit the industrial sector primarily right now. I think what we're, we believe that corporations are going to really use these cost savings that they're seeing on the corporate tax really to fund capital expenditures, which really means in new development or expansion of existing facilities. That, once again, is going to put more product in the marketplace, thereby driving demand for single-tenant industrial warehouse and manufacturing facilities. Outside of that, uh, from our different accounting groups that we work with, there's a number of other smaller um, nuances that exist within the tax code, but we haven't seen anything that just that, that really is going to change anything else in the strategy that, that's prevalent right now overall in the net lease sector. So, is it fair to say that you know industrial net lease, like industrial generally, you know, is really riding the e-commerce wave uh, to to you know to great results for uh, and, you know an outstanding performance for its investors? Oh, there's no question. At the end of the day. Uh, when you look at the challenges that exist out there for the bricks-and-mortar retailers compared to the simplicity of retail delivery to your front door and online shopping, we believe this e-commerce growth and logistic facilities uh, now have gone you know, from really a broad regional basis to now they're coming into neighborhood locations. And with that, that's going to be an ongoing search for newer facilities or renovation of existing facilities in very tight, heavy populated markets. But we, we really see that ongoing for a good another five years of, of, of a lot of heavy, heavy, hefty development. So on one side of this e-commerce, you know, really uh, something that's tr- you know, benefiting tremendously, you know, the industrial space. Uh, on the other side of that equation, uh, are there segments of the retail market and retail net lease that are also being impacted, uh, however, you know, negatively um, by uh, some of what we're ha- seeing happening with consumer behaviors and electronic commerce? You know, that's going to continue. Your 
your local neighborhood shopping centers, your regional shopping centers. I, I don't think there's not a time where we drive in markets and we're seeing more and more vacant spaces, more for-lease signs, more boxes that are going away. I think a lot of us are all aware of the constant retailer bankruptcy filings that are going on. And I think in a lot of ways, if you're going to invest in the retail marketplace, we believe transparency is of the utmost importance. I think that's tough. A lot of these retailers are owned by private equity shops. It's hard to really get insights of how they're performing. And we have a tendency to stay away from those opportunities out there. Yeah. So whether it's net lease specifically or even just the retail sector in general, you know, one of the things I'm curious about is you know, we do hear about, as you described, you know, it, it's been a tough period for retail. There are some types of retail, you know, some product categories that are clearly more deeply impacted than others. Uh, what do we see happening to this retail space that becomes available in the market? Is there anything systematic? They're all becoming you know, distribution centers. They're all becoming pop-up stores, uh, all turning into restaurants. What, what happens to all this retail that's been coming back to market? Well, I think there's a number of different groups that are trying to approach and attack this problem. I think the Urban Land Institute obviously has been discussing this for the last couple of years. I think a lot of us are out there trying to figure out What's the best way to regenerate, bring this space back into usage? Across the board, we can give you a lot of different examples. We think healthcare, you know, is going to take over some of these facilities. I think some of these other facilities could be converted into residential and or mixed-use type facilities. Uh, and I think you all hit the nail on the head. Some of these larger boxes that are, quote, in these neighborhood markets, these last-mile delivery locations can be converted to distribution-type uh, facilities. Uh, and I think that that's where the market's going to be taking a lot of these assets. A lot of them just might be completely leveled, and, uh, and all new development may take shape or form from those sites. What's the outlook for the sector in 2018? I think the same thing for us. We believe current market fundamentals are very positive. I think there's a lot of strong economic growth, what's, what's going on with the corporate tax uh, reform out there, and that the real for us, the increased recognition domestically and the influx of foreign capital is really going to keep these fundamentals strong. We think we're going to stay in an era of stable pricing throughout this year, and we're going to see similar um, strong net lease transaction volume, the same that we saw in 2017, which is right around $45, 46000000000 billion. We'll think that will continue through 2018. Right. We also think at the same time is I can't emphasize enough, and, it, and it, I think everybody, whether you're in this business or not, you know, the strong growth of e-commerce sales for the industrial sector in particular is just going to continue to perform extremely well as supply has just not been able to keep up with tenant demand for these industrial warehouses. We have less than a minute left. Uh, as compared to other property classes, I'm certainly mindful of the fact that you know beyond this growth phase, th- there will eventually be a time where you know the economy is not performing. How does NetLease perform during the next recession? We believe that NetLease uh, overall has performed well for the previous real estate cycles. We think cap rates will increase, um, and they and we've only seen them over the last 15 to 20 years that we've been tracking them. You know, not get beyond an eight and a half to nine percent cap rate. And we I'll think- cut you off there. We're out of time, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on to the program. Thanks for having me. That was James Coleman, Managing Principal and Founder at Elm Tree Funds. It is all the time we have for today. Thanks to both Jim and my first guest today, Dr. Neela Richardson, Chief Economist at Redfin. Our show will be repeated throughout the week. You can read more about the Real Estate Hour and our other shows at the SiriusXM website. 
The Real Estate Hour is produced by Patty Hall, who's also program director here at Business Radio. Danielle Bruno has run of the house on the soundboard, and I am your host, Sam Chandon. Thank you for joining us. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 